Welcome to Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and if I was cosplaying a two-character mashup, I think I would go for a uh, Merida Gideon the Ninth mashup. I'm not sure anybody would like recognize me, but I feel like the red hair plus face paint plus I normally have like really scary curly hair, so I think I could I could do it, and I could kill people with my cool swords. So. You know, those characters are so different. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm Kristen, and I don't have a specific character in mind, but I think it'd be really cool to do like a Shakespearean style Princess Leia, like full rough and stuff. I think that'd be very interesting. Interesting. It's the word that would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Marissa. The first that comes to my mind, uh, I would do a Queen of Hearts mashed with the Scarlet Witch. Oh, because there's a red theme. Yeah, thematically yeah, like consistent. Argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and some like, you know, scary retribution stuff going on too. So Yeah, no, there's a, a wickedness. I feel like yeah. it could work somehow. Absolutely. I love it. I'm, I'm in. As you may have noticed, we have our fabulous guest, Marissa Meyer, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Lunar Chronicles, Heartless, The Renegades Trilogy, and Instant Karma, the graphic novel duology Wires and Nerve, and her newest fantasy duology, Gilded, and the second book, Cursed, which just came out on Tuesday, or it will have by the time this comes out. Um, so tell us about the Gilded duology, Marissa. I would love to, and I'm excited that as of this posting, it will actually be out in the world. Um, because in, in real life, in recording time, I actually just finished going over the final, final, final edits this morning. And oh, wow. so I'm just like, yay, it's done. And I can't wait to come out. Yeah. So, okay. So the Gilded Duology is my retelling of Rumpelstiltskin, which was one of my favorite fairy tales when I was a kid. And in my version, it follows a girl named Cyrilda who has been cursed by the god of lies. And a part of this curse has made her a really excellent storyteller. However, it also comes with some drawbacks. She is a liar. She kind of can't help herself coming up with ridiculous stories sometimes. And this gets her in trouble when one night she crosses paths with the wicked Earl King, who is the leader of the Wild Hunt. And she tells him that she is capable of spinning straw into gold. And not long after that, she is whisked away to the Earl King's haunted castle. And she is locked in the dungeon and ordered to spin straw into gold for him. And if she fails, he will have her and her father killed. Of course, Cyrilla can't do this magical, incredible thing, but luckily there is a poltergeist in the castle who is very handsome and very mischievous. Uh, and it turns out he can spin straw into gold. So he offers to help her, but for a price. Incredible. Awesome. I love a haunt, a good old haunted castle. <laughs> Excellent. That was easily like 90% of the draw of wanting to write this book. I really just want to write about ghosts. (laughs) Well, and the ghosts in these books are just terrifying. I love them. They're both heartbreaking and very, very scary. And so I I love how you pulled the Rumpelstiltskin myth in while still having its 
it's a very unique and large world that feels very complete. And um, I had a really fun time reading them. I got to read the second one, but I won't give any spoilers. So <laughs> super, super fun. So uh, we're going to be talking about brainstorming and writing unique adaptations, partly because I feel like, Marissa, you are the queen of unique and fun adaptations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So maybe the first real question, because most of our audience, they're aspiring authors, should aspiring authors try and write adaptations in the saturated adaptation market? Should they still have hope in their hearts? They oh my gosh. Die. Yes. I never hope. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, it is. It is funny because yes, there are a gazillion adaptations and retellings out there. But for readers who love them, of which I am definitely one of those readers, we can't get enough. Here, the last two weeks alone, I personally have read a Pied Piper retelling, a Cinderella retelling, and a Sleeping Beauty retelling. And I just love them. And they were all so different from each other, but also so different from any other retellings of these stories that I have read in the past. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about doing adaptations is that you can play on this love and this uh, nostalgia that so many of us have for these stories, this familiarity that we have with the stories, but you don't have to stick to the same expected things all the time. You can really let your imagination run wild, whether it's changing the world, doing it a different genre, a different time period, a setting, you know, really twisting something in the story, making one element of it completely different and and something that maybe readers haven't considered before. So there's so much room to play with them. So absolutely, people who love retellings, don't give up just because there's, you know, 8,000 Cinderella's out there. Yours could be the one that stands out. That's awesome. So where do you begin though? Like when you set out to start with an adaptation, What do you normally begin with? Do you think of like the story you want or the setting or just what's your process? For me, when I land on a story that I know that I want to retell, a lot of times I choose the story in particular, either because it's a story that I love. In fact, it always has to be a story that I love for one reason or the other. But a lot of times there's also something in the story that irks me in some way, a question that I feel wasn't answered in a satisfying way, or maybe there's just something about the story that's always nagged at me that I thought, oh, this could be better, or this, there's a plot hole that I'm not happy with, you know, something about it. I feel like I could bring a new twist to, or a new idea to, I could fill it out somehow. So that's, that's usually how I'm choosing what stories I'm retelling to begin with. And then once I've landed on a story that I really want to retell, I will go, I'll reread the source material, reread the grim version or the Perot version. If it's a story that has many versions from all over the world, I might delve into some other cultural versions of it. And I'm trying to get a feel for what are the most iconic elements of this particular tale? You know, what makes it a Cinderella story? What are the things about Rumpelstiltskin that we remember? You know, what are the the most important elements of that story? And once I know what those specific details are, and I know that I want to keep those details, then I start thinking, well, what is that going to look like in my version? You know, so looking at 
Rumpelstiltskin, I knew that I was going to have spinning straw into gold, but I also was always bothered by the fact that the girl herself in the fairy tale is not the one that tells this lie. It was always her father that told the king she could do this. And I was like, but why doesn't she just say she can't? Um, He should be the one getting in trouble for it. And so I knew that that was a detail that I was going to change. I knew that there would be the the helper, the Rumpelstiltskin character who would come and do the work for her. I knew that I was going to use the necklace and the ring and the firstborn child, but I wasn't always sure exactly how those things were going to play a part. Why does she have a necklace? Why is it important? Who cares? Is it valuable? Is it, you know, have personal importance to her? You know, what does it mean? And so I take those little details that I know I want to incorporate But then I kind of just start brainstorming and thinking, you know, what if the ring was this? What if the necklace was this? And kind of let let the story world and the characters kind of start to take over. And I try not to limit my imagination at that point. And if we end up in a haunted castle and the king is the leader of the wild hunt, well, cool, we'll run with that and kind of see where it takes us. I love that approach because I feel like fairy tales have so much room for like, what has happening here? Like, why? Why does Rumpelstiltskin want a child? Like, what's what's going on here? <laughs> so I love that that's the approach that, that you take. So I feel like one thing that's really fun about adaptations is that the new characters that are filling out the roles give it an individual flavor or bring new meaning to the the themes or to um, the story itself. So how do you go about choosing a character to to be the new main character of one of these stories? Yeah, and that is also one of the things that I love. And one of the things that these classic fairy tales give us so little of is characterization. One of my biggest pet peeves with Cinderella was always that she goes off to marry this prince knowing absolutely nothing about him. You know, we've literally danced with him for like 20 minutes and clearly he's the one. That's all um, you need. And <laughs> you know, you know. Yeah, right. I guess love at first sight. Why <laughs> yeah, but I love that doing adaptations, you get to create characters that take the story to a whole new level that really make it a story that isn't just tropes or it isn't just symbolism or these you know universal themes it's now a story that we can really relate to and connect with and see ourselves in or go on an adventure with these characters so as far as i how how do i create those characters uh, i don't know it's hard <laughs> i am not one of those authors i don't do a whole lot of character work at the outset i don't make character profiles mm-hmm. Usually I have an idea of something about this character that is interesting to me. Uh, For example, Cyrilda being cursed by the God of lies that obviously was inspired by the fairy tale and this lie that I knew she was going to tell about spinning straw into gold. And then it just kind of, well, maybe she's cursed. Maybe she can't help herself. And so once I had that idea, well, then you start thinking, well, what would it really be like to be cursed by the God of lies? Maybe she's a great storyteller. Maybe that endears her to some people, people who love the story she tells. But if she's cursed, maybe there's other people that see that as a bad thing. Like maybe there's a lot of superstitions revolving around her. Maybe she's a bit of an outcast. Well, if she's always been an outcast, what does that do to her? You know, is she 
withdrawn and solitary? Is she moody and grumpy because, you know, she's always had people turn their backs on her? Or what ended up happening with Cyrilda was that I thought, well, maybe she's the sort of person that works really, really hard to overcome this. Like maybe she's actually really chipper and fun and overtly friendly because she's trying so hard to fight against these superstitions that have followed her around her whole life. And so it just kind of becomes a lot of questioning and a lot of going down different paths to see, well, what if the character was like this? What if they were like that? What does that do to the story? Do I like that more? Does that feel right? And it's kind of this very exploratory thing. And that exploration that might last for the entire first draft while I'm writing the book. It could last for multiple drafts while I'm really digging deeper and uncovering who they are and getting to know them. Just out of curiosity, how many drafts do you write before you actually show it to an editor or an agent? These days, two. Typically, I write my first draft and then I do one big revision round. Uh, If I had If if it was all up to me, I would love to do three or four drafts. Um, In my earlier writing career, I always would do three or four drafts before I showed it to anyone. But with the way deadlines and schedules have worked out, I just don't have that luxury usually. It's sort of refreshing to hear, though, that like you're not doing a lot of planning and doing a lot of writing like in the a lot of discovery in the writing tends to get a bad rap. But it's really nice to hear that like that is a thing that you do and that works and has given you tremendous success in telling good (laughs) stories. So that's just a relief. (laughs) Thank you. No, it is so funny talking with other writers. Everyone's got their own process. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that I know a lot of writers who don't do the outline at all. Like they really have no idea what the plot is going to be, but they know their characters really well before they start writing And I'm like the polar opposite. I Uh know a lot about my plot. I always make an outline, but I know virtually nothing about the characters before I start. So, you know, we all kind of experiment with different things and you over time figure out what works for you. And I found that what works for one book may not work for the next book. So I try to be flexible. I try to, you know, not never stop learning and never stop experimenting with different things too. I'm in the awful pain of trying to figure out how this new book I'm writing right now is going to be drafted. It's just the worst. So the worlds that you build for your stories to go along with these fairy tales feel completely unique with like magic systems that hinge around these important plot points of a fairy tale. So what's your secret there? I It's funny because I get a lot of compliments on my world building, but I personally feel like it's one of my biggest weaknesses. I don't feel like I'm a natural world builder. But I do work really, really hard at it. So I guess I'm glad that it's working. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing, it seems to, to please people. So for me, I mean, it starts with a time and a place. I usually am anchoring something in the world on reality. With the Lunar Chronicles being a futuristic sci-fi world, I did a ton of research on modern technologies and space travel and moon colonization and all this sort of thing to get a, get a feel for what was realistic and then try to use that to build a really authentic world. With Gilded, I knew that I wanted to set it in a kind of Renaissance era version of Germany um, because the original version of Rumpelstiltskin I shouldn't say the original because it's so hard to trace these things, um, but the version that most of us know is the German version. And I think that I chose that time period because that's when 
the first spinning wheel with the foot treadle was invented. I, I want to say that was like, okay, that's, that's my time period. That's where I'm anchoring this. So with that, you know, tons of research into that time period, the, and the location, the fauna, the flora, the weather patterns, the, you know, what is the technology like? What is the clothing like? All of this, you know, plays a huge role and thankfully means that I don't have to make everything up. Um, and then you start bringing in what is the fantasy element. And a lot of that just hinges on the type of story that I'm telling and a lot of things that I'm, that are covering, coming up in my research. So for Gilded, uh, as I was researching Rumpelstiltskin, um, I came across this detail that they're not entirely sure where the word or the name Rumpelstiltskin comes from, but there is a theory that it might have technically meant little rattle ghost, which would be a type of poltergeist. And so I thought, cool, he's a poltergeist. Now we've got a haunted castle. Now I'm doing things with ghosts. Uh, at the same time, I was researching different mythological animals and creatures from Germanic and Norse mythology and come across the Earl King, come across lots of resources talking about the wild hunt. Awesome. Let's run with that. Well, what are they hunting? What is the wild hunt? What does that look like? And I at some point thought, well, maybe the wild hunt is hunting mythological creatures. So awesome. What sort of creatures are in this world? And it just starts to build and develop somewhat organically from there as you find things that you get really excited about and feel really right. And then you can dig a little deeper and dig a little deeper. That is incredible. And I did not realize there was that much research. That so much research. I love this, research. So cool. I would do nothing but research if I could get paid for it. <laughs> Are there things that you would caution authors against doing in an adaptation? Ooh, like um, hmm. not off the top of my head. I mean, I can give what for me is like a personal pet peeve. Again, as a lover of adaptations. I read a ton of them. For me personally, there are, I have come across some books where I felt like the author didn't take enough of those iconic elements from the story. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe it starts out a retelling of this story, but at some point they've gone so far off into left field that it doesn't ring like it's really a retelling anymore. And this is just a personal thing. Like for me, I if I'm reading a retelling, I want to feel like I get that full encapsulated story. Obviously, there could definitely be readers who feel differently and who love when authors start with the seed of the fairy tale and then, you know, run off in a totally new direction. For me personally, it's not my favorite, but I don't know. Even there, I'm like, I don't know if I would tell someone not to do that, though. I think that you really kind of have to write the story of your heart and the story that you're excited to tell. So I don't know. I don't think I really. Yeah, nothing that really comes to mind. That's great. Sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It sounds like you go into like history and technology and just kind of follow your brain as far as, as brainstorming goes. Is there anything else that helps you to write these adaptations that helps you to, to make sure that they keep that core structure that you're talking about? You just are really familiar with them, you sound like, but is, is there anything else that helps you to like really bring in those elements to make them your own? I make a lot of lists and I will usually start or my early brainstorming process. I will have an actual written list of like, here's the things I want to include with 
Cinderella. I want there to be a slipper. I want there to be a ball. I want there to be a prince. Uh, what's the fairy godmother element going to be? You know, whatever this is, I'll have a list and I will spend a ton of time thinking about that list and thinking, what if it was this? What if it was that? What happens to the story if we change this de detail, you know, and just kind of following different paths. But if I ever realize that I have lost one of those elements, or if I ever feel like one of those details is not coming up clear enough in the story, then to me, that's a red flag that no, I need to pause and really think about this some more and figure out how can I incorporate this better. I think that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Marissa. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We do have some signed special editions of the Gilded Duology on sale in our store with some pretty stenciled edges. Be sure to check them out. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>